It is a tremendous privilege to be a Christian. It is a style of life that, of course, has all the blessings vouchsafed to us by the God of heaven while here in the flesh, and it holds all the marvelous promises of eternity in heaven. It is indeed a marvelous privilege to be a Christian. And today it's truly a joy for each of us to be assembled and to offer adoration, praise, worship, and glory into the name of God. And truly as we hopefully will set our week off to a wonderful start this way, that we'll be able to appreciate, of course, the privilege of being a Christian and the glory that comes with setting forth the example to others of the livelihood of Christ himself. As we're gathered today, we have the opportunity to continue our series of studies on the topic of premillennialism. We are now into the fourth installment of that series already, and as we continue to move through it here onward, each one of the weeks we'll give some particular consideration to one of the aspects of that premillennial presentation by way of brief recognition and review. Through our first four lessons, we certainly, or the first three I should say, will be certainly a bit on the brief side, but we began by appreciating the place of authority that we must seek heaven's authority and not men's as we speak on the subject of premillennialism. In the second lesson, we took an interesting turn to consider the features and aspects of what men have said, trying to familiarize ourselves with that as it stands opposed to what God has said. In the third lesson, last Lord's Day morning, we came to ask the very interesting question that had to do, in fact, with the very subject of why did the Lord come the first time? We learned it was not to establish a physical kingdom. Far from it, it was directly to address men's sin-sick spiritual problems. And with that, we come to the next question that premillennialism sets before us and the next topic in order. In fact, as you may have noted in both the bulletin and on the wall, our fourth installment will be this. Was the Jewish rejection of Jesus a surprise? Was the Jewish rejection of the Christ a surprise? You might remember that as we turned our attention to what men have said, the presentation of men went something like this, that the Old Testament had prophesied that Jesus would come and establish a physical kingdom, and he would reign over it much like David and Solomon had done in days gone by. However, when he did come, much to his surprise, we are told, The Jews rejected him and his leadership. And this surprise, as it occurred to both Christ and to God, emanated in his presentation instead of a spiritual kingdom known as the church. But that that initially was not God's plan, so we are told. And hence today, let's at least address that matter. Was it a surprise that the Jews rejected the Christ? Did it come as a shock to Christ? Let's turn today on a number of different instances and look at a host of passages that shall leave no doubt in our mind as to the biblical answer to that question. As we do so, might we first focus on one of the aspects of that question itself? Having to do with the Jewish rejection. Did the Jews reject Christ? In what way did they reject him if so? And in what way should we look upon that as presented in the word of God? Might I invite us to take an interesting journey over the next few moments and look at a few of the passages that directly address the Jews and their relationship with Christ and reach a conclusion as to whether or not they rejected him. Because after all, that would be an important point if we are told that their surprise or that their rejection was a surprise. 
perhaps we should know whether or not they in fact rejected him. In Luke, the fourth chapter, when we come early in the Lord's personal public ministry, we find on that occasion that he came to his hometown, the very city of Nazareth. And as he came to that location and place, he had the opportunity to preach and proclaim the message that he was allowed to speak that day. As a part of that lesson, he quoted from the 61st chapter of the book of Isaiah. And in that quotation, he said, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And that message, and in the words that he shared in the statements that followed, sufficiently challenged those of that day that they responded in great rejection to what the Lord proclaimed and preached. In fact, in verses 28, 29, and 30 of that chapter, we find that they were so, in fact, built up in wrath and in anger and in rejection that verses 28 to 30 tell us that they, in fact, brought the Lord to the very brow of the, of the hill on which the city was built and were prepared to cast him headlong over it. The text uses the word wrath to describe their response to Christ. Inasmuch as the Lord had entered the synagogue, certainly Jews were those who would have been gathered at that place to worship. And here we have a case in point that the Jews on that occasion did reject his preaching, they rejected his message, they rejected his application of Isaiah 61. Might we look at another example? In John the fifth chapter, we come on this occasion to that very scintillating set of events in which at the Bethesda pool in Jerusalem, Jesus healed a man who for so many years had been present there but had been able to get into the water and be healed when it was troubled by the angel. As we appreciate the verses that followed, the Lord healed that man, and it was the Sabbath. We notice when those others became aware of what the Lord had done, and on what day of the week it had taken place, they were beside themselves in anger. In fact, they challenged not only the man that had been healed, but Jesus himself, in light of their testimony that these things ought not so have been, for on the Sabbath, you see, one certainly couldn't strive to heal anybody. How inconsistent was their thinking. And yet, notice carefully verses 16 and 18 of that chapter. I would ask that you notice the wording because it is sufficiently strong. Notice again. Verse 16 says, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. We have carefully noted the word Jews and the fact that they persecuted Christ, so much so that they even sought to slay him. Two verses later in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. John makes it abundantly clear to us, doesn't he, that the Jews, in fact, sufficiently persecuted Christ, rejected him, that they sought to kill him, to slay him. In John 7, verse number 1, a little bit later in John's inspired account, we have this following statement made. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry, because the Jews sought to kill him. One more time, Jesus was unable to freely walk in the confines of Judea. Rather, he needed to proceed to do his work at that time in Galilee because the Jews were so incessant on taking his life. 
somewhat later in John chapter 10, verses 31 and 39. We notice there that the Jews picked up rocks, stones, and were prepared to stone him. Do we have any question at this point then from the sacred testimony of the Word of God that the Jews to this point have rejected the Christ? They have had little interest in his preaching, little interest in the doctrines he presented and taught, little interest in the great thoroughfare of the channel of God's grace and mercy presented in the form of Jesus, the Son of God. In the book of Mark, we notice in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, this of course now was inching very closely to the end of his life in the flesh. But on this occasion we find one more time the way in which they reacted to his preaching. They sought to catch him in his words, the text says. They weren't interested in listening to improve themselves or listening in order to apply to their lives what the Lord had taught. Their interest was to catch him in his words, to entangle him in some way so they could discredit him in the eyes of the people. Those were the Jewish leaders of that day. So interesting is all of that that we find that it stands opposed to what we read in Mark twelve thirty seven. There were some common people who heard gladly what Jesus had to say. But these chief priests, these Pharisees, these elders and scribes, these who would have been the directors and the leaders of the classification of Judaism so rejected the Lord that that brings us to what we would recognize as the culminating fact of his death. After some time in which he preached, somewhat over three years, we find that that antagonism and hatred had so welled within the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the other religious leaders that they were able by their influence on the people, to do some of the things that I've listed on that screen. We find, for instance, in Mark 15, verse 11, that when Pilate gave the opportunity of releasing either Barabbas or this man known as Jesus, the chief priests, who now? The chief priests. Those priests who were very knowledgeable of the law of Moses and who strove to keep it and to apply it and who were those who served as priests for the matter of Judaism. The chief priests said, Release unto us Barabbas. What then should I do with Christ? With this one called Jesus. The same chief priest said, Crucify. Crucify. These very chief priests were the ones who then set forth this message and who encouraged the people in the very presence of Pilate, to beg the release of Barabbas and to insist on the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jews painted a very strong message of rejection of the Christ, didn't they? Can we not see furthermore in John 19 verse 6 how that those messages are set forth as we notice the listing of others of the Judaistic classification? You see, in their rejection of Christ, we find that they had a very significant role to play in his road that led to Calvary, the Jewish rejection of Christ. As if those passages weren't enough, listen to some of the way later biblical books present these ideas. On the day of Pentecost, not very many days following the crucifixion itself, the inspired Peter, as he stood before those on that majestic day and proclaimed the first gospel message, notice verse number 23, in which he was able to say so powerfully and yet so very directly, 
that you, by wicked hands, have crucified and slain the Son of God. I emphasize that word you. If you're reading in the King James translation, it's ye. But notice, those gathered that day were Jews. They were gathered to celebrate the Old Testament feast of Pentecost. And while therein gathered, Peter said, You, by wicked hands, have crucified and slain the Son of God. Was Peter telling a lie? I think not. He was an inspired spokesman that day. The Holy Spirit had come upon him and the others and baptized them. And thus, that which they spoke, per the promise of John sixteen thirteen was absolutely that which was true. And Peter said they had been guilty of murdering the Son of God. Later in the New Testament, we notice in Acts 7, verse 52, the inspired spokesman that day was Stephen. And in that beautiful and eloquent sermon that he portrayed and delivered, he in fact carried them through an Old Testament lesson in history. He started with Abraham, and as he came to the mention of Jesus, the Son of God, he made note of the fact you are stiff-necked and uncircumcised. You always do that which your fathers have done, rejecting the Holy Spirit. In the next verse, he said, you betrayed and murdered the Son of God. We well recall that they weren't very pleased with that lesson, or at least the way it concluded. So displeased were they that they picked up rocks and they stoned the preacher. Might we notice, again, he had also pointed out to them the guilt of the fact that they had rejected the Christ. Later we find the Apostle Paul joining this chorus in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 14. Amongst the writings of that inspired apostle, the very gentleman Paul made this statement. Again he said, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men. That sentence is very poetic in some ways, isn't it? But yet its message cannot be misunderstood, for Paul carefully noted that the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and their own countrymen. We can thus conclude this opening segment of our lesson affirming well, can't we? The Bible tells us the Jews rejected the Christ. They were not submissive to his message nor his will. And in fact, they had a large role to play in putting him to death. They were called murderers. They were called the very ones who betrayed the Christ. All of that brings us then to this question. Was their rejection of Jesus a surprise? Did it come as a shock to the Son of God? that they did not accept him. Let's look at the next part of our lesson and cast the spotlight on that question and see also if the scriptures do not provide an unequivocal answer to those matters. To begin, might we well say that if there were prophecies in the Old Testament that the Jews would reject Jesus, then surely it could not have been a surprise. Can we not all agree to that thought that if there were prophecies in the Old Testament that hundreds if not thousands of years foretold that the Jews would reject him, then it could not have been a shock or a surprise. He must have known it, God must have known it, and it must have been a recognized fact of what they appreciated concerning Christ's will here upon earth. In fact, let's look at a few passages that will 
easily and very powerfully answer these thoughts. Let's start in the 22nd Psalm of the Old Testament. As we revisit that 22nd Psalm, we find a psalm that in many ways can bring a tear to our eyes because in it we have one of the clearest Old Testament descriptions of what was to befall the one when he came to this earth. We understand that when David penned that psalm, it was roughly a thousand years before the birth of Christ. Roughly a thousand years before Jesus entered the world in the form of that fleshly babe in the manger in Bethlehem. But yet we find amazingly in verses 16 and following of that chapter that David gave a description of the way in which that one would meet his death. He said, they will pierce my hands and my feet. Without doubt, a prophecy of the very things that would take place at Golgotha. When they pierced his hands and his feet, driving those nails into them and yet a thousand years before that, David made statements about what would take place. We might well then ask the question, was the crucifixion a surprise? Of course it wasn't. God had known it a thousand years before and had David write about it. In Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, that great and powerful minor prophet gave us another description of some interesting features of the death of our Savior. For on that occasion, wasn't it true that Zechariah affirmed he would be pierced and that there would be great mourning in light of that event. Pierced indeed was he. Do we not remember that that Roman soldier thrust his spear into the side of our Savior, piercing that side? And as that took place, can we not see again that Zechariah, well over 500 years before the event, prophesied that it was to take place? In addition to David and Zechariah, perhaps we can look at the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Perhaps that's a passage that has been so moving and so compelling for many of us. As we consider again, well over 750 years before the birth of our Savior, Isaiah wrote the following. He wrote about this one who was bruised for our iniquities. He wrote about the one, in fact, who was wounded for our transgressions. About the one whose stripes, and by those stripes we are healed. Let's give some thought to the verbs again that were employed. This one was wounded. He was beaten. In fact, by his stripes, oh, he was whipped for us. Later in that chapter, a description of his burial is given, so he was put to death. And all of it was prophesied so long before the events actually happened. Friend, the rejection of Christ was no surprise. God and the Son knew it very, very well. And so many passages of the Old Testament had not only affirmed that he would be rejected, but in fact affirmed who would have a role to play in it. In light of those passages to which we've looked so far, perhaps we should turn to Daniel chapter 9. Another of the prophets of the Old Testament, this time it's a major prophet known as Daniel. In the ninth chapter of that book, a passage to which we shall return a bit later in this series again because his prophecy of 70 weeks is a vital part of some of the features of dispensational premillennialism. But yet might I ask you to notice one of the statements, and I have included it verbatim. The Messiah would be cut off. His life will be ended. The very ones whom he came to save and to present through his own lineage the character of God, they will have a role to play in his being cut off. 
That's the description you see of his death. There would be those present who are the very countrymen known as the Jews would have a role to play in it. And if we still have any doubt as to who is being referenced, that passage in Zechariah 12 verse 10 states it clearly. They were those descended through both Israel and Jacob, the very people known as the Jews. It was foretold, you see, that they would reject the Christ. It was foretold that they would not accept him. Doesn't that paint a very interesting picture then as to where you and I stand today? This premillennial idea where so many claim that it was a surprise that they rejected him, that it was a shock that they did not accept him. Have they not read some of these Old Testament passages? Or do they read them but misapply them or misinterpret them? There is one particular mode in which some will say that it was prophesied that he would be rejected. But perhaps the thought was that upon his coming in the person that they would rather accept him rather than reject him. Friend, that takes a dim view toward Bible prophecy. God cannot lie, Titus 1 verse 2. And if those prophecies affirmed he would be rejected, then the Old Testament would be a liar had they accepted him instead. God always affirms and sets forth that which is absolutely true, and the Jews rejected him, just as the Old Testament had said they would. Those passages perhaps bring us near the bottom of that slide, wherein I would submit the language in some ways gets even stronger as we look at some of the inspired preachers of the New Testament. In Acts the second chapter again, on that day of Pentecost in verse 23, listen to the words of Peter as he made statements about the nature of that rejection and who it was he said rejected Christ. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. We'll pause at the end of verse 24. Interestingly, we notice that Peter has directly said that you by wicked hands have crucified and slain. But notice what preceded that statement. Christ was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Let us ask what that means. The determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God? That word determinate, you see, in the Greek means determined. It furthermore means to make a definite plan. That word counsel, as you can also see, means counsel or purpose. And finally... That word foreknowledge means forethought or prearrangement. Let's put those things together. By the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, then means by the definitive plan that God had prearranged. What's that? By the definitive plan that God had prearranged. To say that that plan was prearranged means God had known it since the foundations of the world. The Jewish rejection of Jesus was no surprise. God knew it and Christ knew it long before Christ ever came to this world. Might I submit, in fact, that that paints a whole new picture for the degree of Christ's love for you and for me. Let's think of it in words like this. If when Christ left the portals of heaven in all of its glory, 
if when he left the majesty sitting there with the Holy Spirit and with the Heavenly Father, if in the process of leaving he already knew what was going to befall him here, he already knew that he would be rejected and that he would in fact die, doesn't that help us appreciate even more the degree of his love for us? For after all, if it could be thought that he really left not knowing he was going to die, not knowing what would befall him here, and that it really was such a shock and a surprise, maybe he didn't love me that much, and maybe he didn't love you that much. But if he knew it all along, and he knew that Calvary was in his future, and he knew what was going to be suffered for you and for me and for our sins, oh, how much he loved us. And oh, how great was his desire that you and I could be free from sin. You see, this matter of premillennialism's thinking that Christ came and that he was rejected as a, as a surprise, that does great injustice to the greatness of his love for us, and it does injustice to the very thing that he knew all along. But let us look at some other passages as well. Not only was it there stated by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, that definitive plan that had been prearranged, notice what else we might well say. In the 18th chapter of Luke, Jesus himself had words to say relative to these matters. And I would ask you to notice the language that the Lord made use of on that occasion. In Luke 18, beginning in verse 31, Jesus on that occasion had these words to say. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. Amongst those things that we've just read, Jesus, of course, was making statements about what was going to happen to him at Jerusalem. But might we note he prefaced that by saying that all the things written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. Lord, are you thus saying that those prophets of the Old Testament wrote and foretold what's about to happen to me? That I'm going to be rejected and killed? That's exactly what he said. Thus, it was not a shock. And if the prophets had written it, it was known long, long before the Lord was ever born in the flesh in Bethlehem. We should put to rest then from our minds completely this thought that it was a surprise or in some way a shock that the Jews rejected Jesus. It was not. It was known thoroughly, completely, and well. And as if those weren't perhaps sufficient, might we notice a whole host of others Perhaps you might want to write some of them down. We'll not take the time to read all of them this morning. But might we notice in Matthew twenty-six fifty-four, in particular Jesus therein stated, as he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and on that occasion when, in fact, he said, Do you not know that I could beseech the Father who would send me twelve legions of angels and deliver me from this position of being arrested? But then notice the interesting question that follows. Then Jesus said, But how then thus shall the Scriptures be fulfilled? Notice, Scriptures were going to be fulfilled when he went to Calvary. And the Lord said, Those won't be fulfilled if I'm delivered from this. 
The Old Testament scriptures had foretold, you see, that he'd be rejected and it would emanate in his death. In Acts 17, verses 2 and 3, the text that Brother Jeff read earlier in our hearing today, when Paul stood so boldly in Thessalonica on the second missionary journey and preached, did you notice? He opened and alleged, using the scriptures, that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again. Perhaps it's easy for you and me to read past that, but notice, to open and allege means to prove and to defend. How did Paul do it? Out of the Scriptures. He was able to use Old Testament prophecy and prove to those folks in Thessalonica that what happened to Christ was supposed to happen in fulfillment of that prophecy. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't surprise. It wasn't shock. The God of heaven in his foreknowledge knew what was going to take place. Those who thus assert that it was a shock or surprise do great injustice to the very plan and will of God and do great injustice to what transpired with regard to the things in Jesus' rejection. Beyond Acts 17.11, in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, as well as in chapter 2 of that same book, one more time, even Peter, on another occasion, made reference to Isaiah 28.16, as well as Psalm 22, quoting both of them, and said, Christ redeemed us by his blood as prophesied. One more time, there can be no question. The prophets foretold it. It was known. As you and I give then some thought near the close of this lesson this morning, perhaps one final thought, and maybe this has already occurred to many of each of us, if it was the case, as the premillennialists claim, that the Jewish rejection of Jesus was a surprise, what does that say about the omniscience of God? What does that say about his all-knowing? Apparently he doesn't know everything, for he didn't know that the Lord would be rejected, if premillennialism is true. Of course, the Bible on so many occasions attests to the fact that God is all-knowing, isn't he? I've listed some verses for your consideration as far back as Psalm 44:21. Isn't it God who searches the heart of every person and knows that which is within them? That thought, of course, recurring in Acts chapter 1 with regard to the selection of Matthias. In Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, perhaps no clearer statement anywhere than that one, where God, through the prophet Isaiah, therein said, I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and that which has not yet been, but that which shall be. What does that say about the omniscience of God? Even that which has not yet been, I know it already, he said, and I can declare it to you. And thus do Isaiah. As we've noted earlier in chapter 53, as well as other places, he clearly affirmed that it was not a shock or a surprise that Jesus was rejected. Perhaps near the finality in Romans 11:33 and 4, the greatness of God set forth by the infiniteness of his wisdom and knowledge, and could we not add that statement of Hebrews 4:13, in which we're reminded that neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. As we come near the conclusion of the lesson this morning, we have thus sought to lay to rest one other of the false pillars on which premillennialism is based. And as I mentioned at the outset of this series, every pillar is faulty. 
every pillar is basically non-existent. Last week, we did away with the thought that Christ came to establish an earthly kingdom. He didn't. Today, we've done away with the consideration that his rejection by the Jews was a surprise. It wasn't. And thus, two of these planks have been forever done away with by the Word of God. And so, in summary, would we not then in fairness be able to say that despite the fact that premillennialism claims that the Jewish rejection of Jesus was a surprise and a shock, it was not, that thought is completely false. The Old Testament prophets have told us clearly, and God knew it before the foundations of the world were ever laid, what was going to befall His Son, and how these mortal sinful creatures would treat the one who He came to save. They rejected Him. They put Him to death. But that didn't stop His work. Thankfully, on that day of Pentecost, we find the blessedness of the gospel proclaimed in all of its majesty and glory. And about 3,000 responded in faithful obedience that day. And the church to this day is a hallmark of what God continues to do for the salvation of the human family. Are you a member of that body today? Christ came to purchase it with His blood, Acts 20, 28. He came to reign over it His head, Colossians 1, 18. He came to set her as the very greatness of those that one day shall inherit the greatness of heaven as its final destiny. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25. Today, what about your life and mine? Are you a Christian? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? If you have been, then thanks be unto God for that decision that you made. May you continue to live faithfully until the day of your death and look forward to inheriting the crown of life. James 1, verse 12. If, however, you are not right in the sight of God, it might well be that from that former position of faithfulness you have drifted. You have apostatized. You have allowed perhaps premillennialism to sink within your mind. And might we never forget that this Left Behind series that is so popular, authored by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins, well over 50 million copies of that have been sold. That doesn't count the movie, those who watched it. It doesn't count articles and those that have visited its website. Over 10 million have bought the children's series of the same thing. This nonsense is rampant. You and I today have seen one other of its planks crumble into dust. As we continue to study it, we'll find more planks will crumble too. Today, if you have accepted that in some way, perhaps never responded in faith to the gospel, come to Jesus today. He begs and pleads with you to allow your heart to be opened unto the truth and to respond in faith to it. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you today in that or to pray for your return to faithfulness upon your repentance and confession, let us know in what way we could help. If you would, please, while together we stand and while we sing.